In order to marry Rachel, Jacob agrees to serve her father for seven years. In the end, Jacob gets Rachel as his wife, but is tricked into taking her older sister as his wife as well. A reading from the book of Genesis. Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were lovely, and Rachel was graceful and beautiful. Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of his love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her maid. When morning came, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, This is not done in our country, giving the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in returning, return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel as his wife. The word of the Lord. Please stand and join me in Psalm 105, found on page 3 of your worship. Together, give thanks to the Lord and call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him, sing praises to him, and give all his marvelous works. Glory is his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Search for the Lord, and he has, and continually seek his face. Remember the marvels he has done, his wonders and the judgments of his mouth. O offspring of Abraham, his servant, O children of Jacob, his chosen. He is the Lord our God. His judgments prevail in the world. He has always been mindful of his covenant, the promise he made for a thousand generations, the covenant he made with Abraham, the oath that he swore to Isaac, which he established as a statute for Jacob, an everlasting covenant for Israel, saying, I give the land of Canaan to be your allotted inheritance. Hallelujah. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Paul offers the reassurance that at those times when prayer is difficult for us, the Holy Spirit prays for us and will bring us comfort. A reading from the letter of Paul to the Romans. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. 
For we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. And God, who searches the heart, knows what it is the mind of the spirit, because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us. Will he not with him also give us everything else? Who will bring any change charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. It is Jesus it is Christ Jesus who died. Yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep to be a slaughter. No, in all these things we are far more than sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word of the Lord. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory be to thee, O Lord. Another parable Jesus put before the crowds. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all the seeds, but when it has grown, it is the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which someone found and hid. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. On finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that is thrown into the sea and caught fish of every kind. When it was full, they drew it ashore, sat down, and put the good into baskets, but threw out the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the furnace of fire. And there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all this? They answered, Yes. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a household who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to thee, O Christ. Be seated, please. 
the parable of the mustard seed is really quite impossible. Uh, mustard does not grow into a shrub. Um, birds of the air cannot make their nests in its branches. Mustard is a weed, a plant that grows about that high, has a lovely yellow flower. Um, it is, however, um, an aggressive weed. No farmer in his right mind would sow mustard into his field as this farmer does. You let a little mustard start at the edge of the field and then you don't keep that um, cut back, it'll take over your field in a couple of years, no problem. In Colorado, there are fields that are just yellow um, with mustard because they haven't been cultivated for a while. So what is this parable talking about? The tree um, that grows with its top to the heavens and its branches that cover the lands and the birds of the air make their nests in it and all of the creatures find their shelter under it is the cedar of Lebanon. Um, all through the Old Testament, the cedar of Lebanon is used as a metaphor um, for David's kingdom. Um, it started out small, but it grew big, and, and it will provide shelter for all of the creatures of the earth. So the community that's keeping these stories of Jesus feels itself to be small and insignificant, but has great dreams for what will happen. Yeah, we may be like a mustard seed now, but someday we'll be the cedar of Lebanon. We may be like a little bit of yeast, which after all is unclean, and on high holy days you have to get all of it out of your house. We may be like a little bit of yeast, but someday we will leaven that whole lump. Jesus' kingdom is not David's kingdom. Jesus' kingdom starts on the fringes. It's inconvenient. It's a weed. It's scrappy. It's dirty. It takes over, but eventually it will happen. It starts small in ways that the world wouldn't notice. It's like a treasure hidden in the field. No one sees it except we few, but it's worth everything we've got. Um, I've been following the news from the Lambeth Conference this past week, and I'm sure some of the rest of you have on the internet. Archbishop Daniel of Sudan, who was here on Ascension Day, um, had dinner with us and preached for us, has issued a statement in the name of the Church of the Sudan um, on Tuesday, I think it was, in which he condemned homosexuality, said we had to stick to the biblical um, standard, whatever that would be, and in his news conference called for um, Gene Robinson to resign, the Bishop of New Hampshire, and that that would make life um, better for people in Sudan. He went on, of course, to say um, that there are no gays and lesbians in Sudan, um, which, of course, is always open to question. As the week wore on, um, people were saying that he had probably issued this statement, which is no different than anything he said before. And in fact, if you read uh, what he said to the Post-Dispatch while he was here, he said much the same thing. People said he issued this statement to kind of undercut conservative pressure being put on him to try and um, circumvent all of that. It nevertheless caused quite um, an uproar at the, at the convention as many American bishops have relationships, many American dioceses have relationships with dioceses in, in Sudan, and so they all started to try and get together to figure out what they were going, um, what they were going to do about that. In the, in the blogosphere, in the, in the internet, 
um, there were many people who were calling Bishop, Archbishop Daniel the champion of orthodoxy. Oh good, we have another champion of orthodoxy. There were others on the other side of the issue calling him duplicitous and disingenuous for taking money and missionaries from the United States and then saying these things. And I can't go that far on either direction. All I can do is remember him at dinner here as a human being, um, a very gracious man, um, living with pressures that I cannot possibly understand, trying to put an end to 21 years of civil war and repair the damage of that and, and get things back, back to normal. But it raised the question for me, are we not perhaps like the mustard seed? We're a little bit inconvenient. We may not be everything that the Church of Sudan would like us to be, and yet we have a relationship. We've sown that seed into Sudan, and who knows what will happen. Sudan, of course, has sown a seed to us, and who knows what will come of that relationship. It makes us a little bit uncomfortable to realize our part in the geopolitics. Archbishop Daniel has said that it makes it hard for the Church of Sudan to evangelize among its Muslim neighbors, knowing how we stand on the gay issue, and that all may be true. It makes, us, it, makes it hard for us to, to be in relationship with um, many of the nations around the world knowing what's going on in Darfur and so on and so forth. It's inconvenient. But if you sow that mustard seed, you don't get to pick which part of the field it stays in. It takes over the whole field. You put the yeast in the lump of dough, and you don't get to choose which part of it raises. It all rises. We have sown some seeds. We don't get to choose which parts of it take over. The kingdom is no more under our control than it is under Sudan's control. It's in God's hands. When Deb went over to Sudan, she thought she was going over to teach theological education by extension and that that would be the main part of her, her business there. It turned out the most important thing she took with her was the knowledge of how to put together a treadle sewing machine. They had two of them in boxes in a, in a hut somewhere. And she said, oh, I know how to put those together. She put them together, knew how to thread them, get it all going. She said, I know how to sew on them. Well, we don't have any patterns. She had just happened to bring with her a pattern for a child's shirt. I have a pattern. We can put that together. We have no thread. Some of us had sent bags of thread over with her. I've got thread. And so before she had left, the Mother's Union was sewing uniforms for their children to go to school and, and for uh, a gift shop, and they were selling and raising money for the tuition um, to send their kids to school. Who knew what would come of that? We didn't get to pick which parts of the lump got leavened. We didn't get to pick which parts of the field the mustard grew in. In our Old Testament lesson, um, it's a long novella, and we read just a little portion of it. I encourage you to go back and read the whole story. It's a winsome story. Um, like his father's servant before him, Jacob makes the journey back to Aram, Syria, um, in, in modern, on modern maps, and comes to the well in the middle of the afternoon, and the shepherds are beginning to gather at the well. There's a huge stone on the well, and he says, why don't you water your sheep? And the shepherds say, only when all of us are gathered together can we lift the stone off to water the sheep. It's a good way of enforcing 
equal water rights. Rebecca comes to the well with her father's sheep. She, he sees Rebecca and falls in love with her on the spot. We know what's going to happen. He's going to marry her. That's what happens when a man and a woman meet at a well, right? He lifts the stone off by himself so that she can water Laban's sheep. Uh, you're not supposed to do that. Um, already he's, he's in, into some trouble. Rebecca runs home and tells Laban, I've met Jacob, our kinsman, at the well. He comes home, he works for Laban. Remember, he's running away from his brother Esau. He's just tricked him out of his birthright and his blessing. Esau wants to kill him. Um, Jacob is more than happy to be somewhere else. So he works for Laban for seven years in order to marry Rachel. And on the wedding night, Laban substitutes Leah. Notice that the women have no say in this, in this arrangement. He wakes up in the morning and says, what have you done to me? The trickster has been tricked. What goes around comes around. He works another seven years in order to make, marry Rachel. And then Laban says, okay, you can have what you've worked for. And Jacob says, no, no, that's all right. I'll only take the spotted animals out of your herd. Well, it turns out most of the animals are spotted, so Laban's sons are a little upset about that and says, no, don't let him do that. They take the spotted animals out. Jacob manages to breed more spotted animals and take them out. He's been there 20 years now, and it's finally time for him to go. Laban won't let him go. So he sneaks off while Laban is out in the field. And when he sneaks off, taking Rachel and Leah and all his children with him, Rachel steals Laban's household gods. Laban comes running out, takes him seven days to find, find them. He finds them. He says, what have you done? Why have you run off like this? And, um, and Jacob says, well, you were defrauding me out of what I'd earned. It was time for me to go, so I just up and left. And Laban says, oh, no, no, that's not the way it is. But somebody has stolen my household gods. And Jacob says, whoever I find has done that, well, you know, that person dies. Rachel is sitting on the camel. The gods are in the saddlebag. He searches the tents. He gets to Rachel's camel, and she says, I'm sorry, it's my period. You can't search the, cam the, the saddlebags. He says, okay, fine. Jacob doesn't know they're in there. So they have a meal, and they say, this meal, this detente is now a covenant between us. And they set up a pillar, an Ebenezer. And they say, I will never cross it coming this way. You never cross it coming that way. And it's the end of the relationship between Israel and Syria. In all that follows, in all of the history of David's kingdom and the wars that they have with Syria, they recognize that this was originally a family relationship gone bad. The suspicions, the deceit, the trickery ended up making what should be a good relationship into a relationship of enmity. I hope that our meal with Archbishop Daniel does not turn out to be the meal between Jacob and Laban that ends what should be a family relationship. Yes, there may be some heartbreak in that relationship, but let's not let it be trickery and deceit. Let's not let it be the relationship that begins the detente and the suspicion 
and the enmity. We may not think that eyeglasses and thread and sewing needles make a whole lot of difference in the midst of all of the kinds of relationships and difficulties going on at Lambeth. We may not think that makes a lot of difference, but neither did that mustard seed, neither does that yeast, but you put it into the lump of flour and the whole thing is leavened. There have been people calling for us to end our relationship with Louis because of what's happened at Lambeth. I can't go that far. Because if we cut that relationship off, there's no opportunity for the kingdom to grow. There is no opportunity for hearts to be changed, theirs and ours. So it can be like Jacob and Laban who never speak to one another again and in fact becomes a relationship of enmity. Or it can be like that treasure hidden in the field worth everything we've got to hold on to. Archbishop Daniel says there are no gays in Sudan. They're just hidden. They're like the treasure in the field. It's worth us holding on to that relationship so that we can see the kingdom grow both amongst them and among us. We don't get to choose which part of the lump gets leavened. We don't get to choose which part of the field the mustard grows in. It takes over the whole business. The kingdom is in God's hands not ours on there.